This morning's reading is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Is everybody okay? Good. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, You're very welcome. Um, We're continuing our study in this letter to the Hebrews uh, this morning. We're going to be in this, uh, this book uh, probably until about May, and um, we'll take a break for Advent, but uh, settle in, kind of buckle up. Uh, we're going to be here for a little while. So let me just remind you um, that the overall theme of this letter is that Jesus is better, okay? You'll, you'll hear that phrase a lot, uh, get used to it. Um, however you want to say it, he, he is more excellent, uh, he's, more, he's surpassing, he is infinitely better than than anything your, your heart can conceive or your mind can imagine. Um, and, and chapter one, really, we saw that the author, he really thoroughly introduced us to this, this theme, that Jesus is better. Um, he, he's done this by uh, painting this breathtaking picture of Jesus Christ. Um, he's, he's, he's writing to, to, to his audience, and he's, he's telling them that, that as good and as helpful as what came before Jesus, the, the old covenant, everything that preceded him was, was good and it's, it's reliable, but Jesus is far better than that. And Jesus, he says, is, is God's full and final revelation to the world of what is good and beautiful and eternal. Jesus Christ is the one who will, by God's decree, own everything in the universe. Uh, Jesus did, after all, he created everything in the universe by speaking it into being out of absolutely nothing. Uh, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He is, he is the exact and precise expression and embodiment of, of who God is. Uh, Jesus bears up and he carries along the universe so that what God has ordained will in fact come to pass. Uh, Jesus, by sacrificing himself on the cross, has done what you and I could never ever do, which is to uh, purify our sins, which is to uh, cleanse us from the defilement and the, the stain of our sin. After he did that, uh, we're told that he, he, he sat down at the right hand of God on the, fr- on the throne to, to rule and to reign forever and ever with all authority. 
Um, he went on and he said, as good and as helpful as the legions of angels that God created, Jesus is far better than them. Um, he is alone the Son of God. Um, Jesus is the one who the angels worship and serve. Uh, Jesus is the one who laid the foundations of the world again. The heavens are his handiwork. Uh, it was to Jesus Christ alone and to no one else did God the Father ever invite to, to sit at the right hand of him, to sit on the throne and to uh, be there until his enemies are uh, a footstool for his feet. Um, what a magnificent introduction to, to this person that is better than anything or anyone else. Um, the rest of the New Testament basically says the same. I don't know if any of you did go back and read John's gospel, but John 1, it's beautiful. It mirrors Hebrews 1. Uh, John writes that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It, it became human in that way. Uh, and he says that because of that, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's speaking about Jesus there. Uh, Paul says in, in Colossians 2, 3, that the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ, uh, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you want the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, if you want the mysteries of God, if you want to understand who God is, if you want to understand what grace and truth is, you go to this person, this man, Jesus. Um, how magnificent and marvelous is he? That's what he unpacked in that first chapter. Uh, immediately then the question is, how important is that to you? How important is this, this marvelous person, Jesus, that he has introduced us to? How important is he to you? How important is the message that he speaks to us to you? Um, is it of paramount, dare we say, eternal importance to you? Is it more important to you than anything else? Or is it at best mildly intriguing? Is it interesting? Maybe you're like me where it can be momentarily valuable to you. There's times in your life when it's uh, of weighty importance, but then there's other times when, if you're honest, it's not that big of a deal. In chapter one, the writer has set before us the divine glory uh, of Jesus Christ, that he is divine, that he is the son of God that, that reigns and rules forever. Um, he, is, he is at whom God has spoken to us in these last days. In chapter two, he's gonna shift to to then looking at Jesus' humanity, his humiliation. But before he goes there, he, gives, he pauses and he gives his readers this word of warning. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So remember what he says in, in chapter 1, verse 2, that God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, and God has fully and finally revealed himself to us in Jesus. He has spoken to us. So the question is, are you listening? Are you paying close attention? And let's look at that, war that warning. Notice he begins in verse 1 with that word, therefore. We talk about this a lot. That word, therefore, means for this reason or, or because of what I just talked about in, verse one, in chapter 1. So because Jesus is God's final and, and, and full revelation of himself, because Jesus is himself God, because Jesus is the creator and the upholder of the universe, because Jesus is superior to the angels, because Jesus sits on the throne forever and ever, 
Because of that, we must therefore pay much closer attention to what we have heard about him, what we have seen about him, what we know about him. The, ele- the everlasting God speaks to us in his son. Surely we, should, we ought to pay close attention to that. Um, notice he doesn't just say, hey, pay, pay attention to that. He doesn't even say, pay close attention to that. He says, we must pay much closer attention to that. Um, that, that word, that phrase, much closer, it's actually a single word in the Greek, um, and it, it literally means super abundantly. It, it, it means to, to go far beyond the regular amount or the regular size. He's saying it's, it's exceedingly, it's, it's extremely, we need to pay much closer attention to what we have seen and heard. He's, he's urging them. He's, he's pleading with them here. It, it's, it's of utmost importance that you must pay closer attention to this. He says, we must. And he says, we, so he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to those that, who at least claim to be followers of Jesus. And he says, we must. And so it's, it's not good advice. He's not saying it's optional. Um, he's not, he's, this isn't a, a, a good suggestion here. He's saying it's a matter of immediate and constant and eternal urgency. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What we've heard is, is again, what God has spoken to us in Jesus. That, that's the, the object of our, affection, of our attention. That's, that's who we pay much closer attention to. He says, pay closer attention to him, otherwise you will drift away from it. That, that, that meaning of that, that Greek word, drift away, it's the only time it's used in the scriptures, uh, this one time. Uh, it's used in other uh, kind of extra-biblical literature, uh, uh, other writings around that time. And the meaning of that word, drift away, it's something of, it's like a, a ring that slips off your finger. Um, so if, I, I don't know if anyone's ever lost a ring, but usually when you lose a ring, you don't know you lost it the moment it slips off your finger, it's, you're reaching for something, you're, where'd my ring go? It's, oh, flip, I've lost my ring, where could it be? It's, it's drifted away in that way. Um, a, perhaps a better description, um, the writer, he has this kind of theme of, he has this kind of nautical theme that he, he dips into occasionally. Um, uh, dip into, that's not a, uh, it's a pun. Um, <laughs> yes. The, uh, perhaps a better description of drift away is, is a ship that is, that is slowly drifting out to sea. It's, it's drifting past the, the dock that it should be secured and anchored in. It's drifting out to sea. Um, I wonder if that describes, I, not I wonder, I bet that describes some of us in the room today. You're drifting. You may not know it, but you're drifting away from Jesus, away from this gospel that he brings. And here's the scary thing about drifting is, do you know what you have to do to drift? Nothing. A- absolutely nothing. And so we're, we're not talking about you being involved in some serious sin here. That's not the point here. That's, that's not the immediate danger. It, it's you simply not paying close enough attention to it. It's you simply not, it, it, it's, it's, it, you take it lightly. It, it's, it's a casual thing for, for you. The thing about that is you can be faithful, you, you can be present, you can be here every Sunday, you can be at present in your MC every week, you can be on a serving team, you can be, in, you're, I'm leading an MC, 
I'm an elder. You can do all of those things. You can be involved in all of those things and still be drifting away. Um, remind anyone, any Declan O'Rourke friends in the room? Um, he's an Irish singer-songwriter. He uh, reminds me of a song he wrote called We Didn't Mean to Go to Sea. It, it's, a, it's a love song. It's about two lovers who are uh, so transfixed. They're so mesmerized by one another. They're so in love. They're, they're embracing so much that they didn't realize they were drifting out to sea. Um, they're, they're, they're being with each other. They're, their love for one another uh, let me read you the, the lyrics. The lyrics, the song goes, Along the quayside you were the light, and I, a reflection, lay across the river and the night. You were transfixed on me, and I was mesmerized, and the names we whispered, and, and names were whispered to and by you and I. The tides began to steal away the morning light. As night receded, river walls seemed to grow high. Then you climbed down into my arms and closed your eyes. When we awoke, we had been drifting. We didn't mean to go to sea. We didn't mean to drift away. We never planned to up and leave, but still the sea took us away. We saw no lands on the horizon, no distant shores along the fray. Yet all the more we found ourselves lost at sea that day. So... It's a love song. You're, you're meant to listen to me like, wow, look how, and love, how big their love is. They didn't realize they were going out to sea. Um, but the point I took away from that is they didn't mean to drift away. They didn't, they didn't mean to, 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 to be lost at sea, but, but they are because they weren't paying attention to what they were, where they were. Um, I think the point is the author is making is you can be wrapped up in good things and still be drifting. Some of you think you're not Act, it's because you're not actively running away. You're not actively involved in, in, in some serious sin. You're not actively possibly even living in open, unrepentant rebellion that you're okay. That's not true. You could be drifting. And it's one thing to come to church. It's one thing to hear the gospel preached regularly. It's one thing to even read your Bible regularly. And it's another thing to have a focused and a fixed faith on Jesus to pursue him daily, to, to desire in, 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 in growing in your knowledge of him, to, to increase your affections for him daily, to have your attention fixed on him more than anything else, to have greater affections for him more than anything else. The question is, well, what are you paying close attention to? What, what does capture your attention? We live in a time in history where more and more Things are vying for your attention. You all feel that. Uh, Lewis Cronenberger said, the trouble with our age is all signposts and no destination. We're, we're pulled in, in a thousand different directions, and we never find a destination. We never put down roots. Um, we're busy. We're distracted. Uh, these computers in your pocket, they're designed for you to constantly reach for it and pick it up and, and to engage with it, to fix your attention on that. That's the point of them, to keep you scrolling. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? These things we never would have cared about before. This is, you have to have uh, a, a, an opinion on this. Um, look at what they've done. Look at what they're wearing. Look at where they're on holiday again. Did you hear what this polit politician said? What about this? This You're, you're consuming. You're, you're constantly engaged and, and processing and thinking. What has captured your attention more than anything else? 
uh, the author's warning here is not to drift away from what we have heard, which is Jesus, what God has spoken to us. Um, Don't drift away from him. He's saying that in order not to drift away, we must pay closer attention to that message. You read that, that, that sentence kind of backwards as well. In order not to drift away, we must pay much closer attention. Um, couple, uh, we've kind of mentioned this in passing, but we, we have this like three-year vision for village. What we want to kind of like accomplish in, in the next three years, it has three parts to it. But one of them is this, is a spiritual formation aspect that we want this, this discipline of abiding with Jesus, of, of practicing his presence daily, uh, of pursuing him daily to just be a, a, a normal daily discipline for everyone in our church. Um, and, and, and this passage is, is part of the reasons that we've put the, uh, uh, an emphasis on that is because if you're not daily abiding with Jesus, if you're not transfixed on him, rooting your life in him, then you are drifting. And the author goes on to <clears throat> really express the importance of paying closer attention and thereby not drifting. So in verses two and three, um, he uses this tool that, that rabbis use. It's called a lesser to greater argument. Uh, let me just read those verses and look for the lesser to greater argument. Uh, he says, well, verse one, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, uh, and, and every transgression or disobedience received a, a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Um, so we talked about this last week, this Jewish idea that the old covenant uh, was declared and communicated by angels, um, and his, his, his lesser to greater argument is if that message, the old message declared by angels and he, he, in, in verses 1 and 2, he, he, he contrasts that with the, the greater message delivered by Jesus himself. He said, if that message that was declared by angels, which is reliable, he says, it's not a bad message. It's, it's a good message. Uh, it, it was for their good, uh, even though it was just a foreshadow of the better message in Jesus. He's saying if, if disobedience to, to that message received a just punishment, how much greater or, or more serious is it for us not to neglect the, 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 the greater salvation that, that Jesus brings, the, the greater message that he brings? If it was important to heed to the message declared by angels, how much more important is it that we pay much closer attention to what is declared by Jesus himself? We see drifting away from it is neglecting it, he says. And the author is urging these Christians to pay much careful attention to, to not to do that. Um, the fact that he even, he, he says such a great salvation, that should be enough to, to, to make you lean in a bit, to make you want to, to, to listen a bit closer. And he immediately tells us in the next verses why we can confidently anchor ourselves to this salvation. Uh, he says, well, because it was declared at first by the Lord. So, so Jesus, the Son of God, has declared this message that's, that's a reason that we can confidently anchor ourselves to it. So you see Jesus do this in Mark 1 15. It's how he begins his public ministry there by saying that the time is near, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, the, the gospel. He's declaring that. Um, he, the author also says that this great salvation, he goes on to say, well, it was also attested, which means confirmed 
to us by those who heard. So he's, he's talking about eyewitnesses here. He's talking about the apostles who, who, who heard this message from the lips of Jesus, who saw him raised from the dead, who saw him ascend to heaven. He's like, that's what they, they attested to. They confirmed that message. And he says in verse four, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his, his, uh, to his will. I wonder if that's another like many lesser to greater argument there. So not only was it confirmed by these eyewitnesses, but, but an even, even greater witness came along to assure the validity, the validity of the gospel message. God himself bearing witness. So it's not just a witness in word, but it's also a witness in action and activity by God himself. Signs and wonders and miracles and, and, and the powerful witness of him sending the Holy Spirit to, to distribute gifts. He's talking about confirmation of this message, about assurance of this message. You can, you can be sure of this. You can be anchor yourselves to it. I think what we read so far, the question really is, why would anyone not, why would anyone choose to neglect such an urgent message? Why would anyone choose not to, not to pay much closer attention? Given all that we've, we, we, we've seen and heard about Jesus in chapter one, he's the, the, the divine son of God, he reigns and he rules forever. Given those, those assurances in, in verses two and three of, uh, of chapter two, what possible explanation could be given for, for not paying much closer attention to Jesus? to who he is and what he has done. Sam Storm says, the only reason would be that, that people regard other things as more valuable and more beautiful, more satisfying and better than Jesus. Let me say that again. The only reason for, for people choosing not to pay much closer attention to Jesus is that they find other things better than him, other things more satisfying than him, other things as, as more beautiful and more valuable than Jesus. Now remember, he's, he's not speaking necessarily directly to non-Christians here, although this message is for them as well. He's speaking to those who call themselves disciples of Jesus. The only reason for, for those people not to pay closer attention and non-believers is that they find other things better than Jesus. Our author is urging us to pay closer attention, otherwise we will drift away. We will neglect this great salvation. And he says there's big consequences for that. It's not optional. It, it's, it's not something that you should do when you get a chance. Um, it, hey, uh, you know what? That sounds good. I'm going to do that when, when I can, when things do get easier, when things settle down a little bit. Uh, maybe when I'm a little bit more satisfied and, and settled and content, then I'll be ready to, to really give Jesus attention, really dig in. Um, listen to me. If you're waiting for a better time to start paying closer attention to Jesus, that time is not coming. If you're waiting for a time when you're a little bit more satisfied in life, when things quiet down a little bit, when, you're, when your children mature a little bit more, that time is not coming. And I think we have a lot in common with uh, 
the original audience here. Um, so his audience is, um, they're, they're possibly tempted with distraction. Um, they're, they're possibly searching for satisfaction, for joy. Um, they're possibly dealing with disappointment. They're, they're definitely um, dealing with sorrows. Um, and he's saying there's only one answer to all of those things, and that is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me read from, from verse 5. He, he, he explains this further. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's continuing that, that argument that he made in the previous chapter that it's, it's not the angels that God subjected the world to come. When he says world to come, he, he's talking about this future age. And he, he quotes Psalm 8 to describe this. What is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And I think the reason he quotes that psalm is really, really interesting. Um, I don't know if, I th- I'm, I'm going to assume that most of your minds when you read that go to Jesus. He's the one who's been crowned a little, uh, made a little, for a little while lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor, everything in subjection to him. Um, but that's, that's not immediately where his Jewish audience's minds would have gone uh, because Psalm 8, it, it's originally uh, about man. It's originally about us in that way. When, when you read Psalm 8, your, your mind is, the reader's minds are meant to go to the creation mandate in Genesis 1.28 and where God creates man in his image, and he blesses them, male and female, and he, he tells them essentially to, to have dominion over the world, to, to rule over the world as vice regents of God, okay? And he, he says, go subdue it, have dominion over it, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, all these animals and stuff. That's where our minds are meant to go. Let me read you a little bit more of uh, original Psalm 8. So how majestic, uh, uh, Lord of all, uh, how majestic is your name, O Lord? Um, he gets to verse 3. Uh, uh, when I look at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, and he goes into what we've heard. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the sons of man uh, that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So that's creation mandate there. That we're, we're, that's what God created mankind for. And Psalm 8 is pointing to that. It, it, and I think that's where his audience's minds would have gone. They're thinking that. And, and I think that's where the author wants their minds to go because uh, remember what their experience is right now. So the audience is experiencing hardship, that they're experiencing even persecution because of their faith in Jesus. 
So they've become Christians. They, they have now, uh, they, they are part of the church and they um, identify as, as the people of God. And their experience of that is, is, is hard. Um, they, they're, they're, exper- they're, they're saying life is difficult. Life is hard. We're experiencing persecution, but we've put our faith in Jesus. What, something's not lining up there. And their, their temptation is to go back to their old ways. Their temptation is to neglect this great salvation, to go back to the old covenant of Moses. You ever feel that way? I've placed my faith in Jesus. Why is life so difficult now? What about Psalm 8? When is Psalm 8 going to happen? Look at verse 8. He says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. There's a couple ways, there's two different ways to kind of interpret that. I think they're both okay. Either subjection to him means the original Psalm 8 way, man, us, or it means we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, Jesus. Um, Either is okay, but his point is the same either way, that, that things aren't adding up the way they thought we thought they would. Things aren't working out the way you said they would, God. What about Psalm 8? I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated with life. Things aren't working out the way I thought they were supposed to. At this present time, I don't see everything in subjection to him. I don't see everything working out the way it's meant to. I love that he says we in that verse. Circle that. We do not yet see. So the author is including himself in the pain. He's including himself in the frustration. He's saying, I'm with you. I'm lamenting with you. I'm groaning with you. I think he's speaking about us living in the here and not yet. We talk about that. So the, the, this, this such a great salvation that we experience is, is here. We are part of this great salvation. We are part. Jesus has, has what he's accomplished on the cross is for us. But, but there's, there's the kingdom. There's still to come. There's still this, this outworking of that to come. This, the, there's truths are present and forever, but it's, the reality is still to come. It's, it's a world to come, like he says in, in verse 5. Our hope is secure in Jesus, but until he, he comes again, we do experience suffering. We do experience disappointment. We do experience sorrow. And the author is saying, I'm with you in that. But, in verse 9, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, he says, crowned with glory and honor. So at this point, he makes it crystal clear who exactly he's speaking about. He says his name, Jesus. First time he says Jesus in Hebrews. He's saying, presently, we may not be experiencing the full realities, the full consummation of this great salvation. But he says, we do see Jesus. And he, he, he goes back into Psalm 8 again, again. Who, for a little while, was made lower than, than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. He's telling his audience this, that, that, that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of Psalm 8. 
Psalm 8 may not be our experience yet. It may not be true for us, but it is true for Jesus. He's saying, Psalm 8, Genesis 1:28. these things that Adam and the sons of man were meant to experience, but, but we never could because of our sin. He's saying, Jesus, the, the second and the better Adam, the, the, the archetype son of man, has come and he's fulfilled that. He has fulfilled Psalm 8, and it's actually only through and in him that we can then experience Psalm 8 as well. I think this is one of the points the author is trying to make, that, that Jesus is our example in this. He's, he's our leader in this. What we see in Jesus is, in his life, first came suffering, and then came glory. We, we talked about that last week. First came Becoming lower than the angels in that way. Coming to earth. Humiliation, servanthood, obedience to the point of death. And then after that comes glory and honor. That's Jesus' path. And that's actually going to be our path as well, we're told. Um, now, he did it in, in a, a way that we never could. So, um, let me say again, the... What Jesus accomplished on the cross, um, you and I never could, okay? Um, so remember uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he made purification for sins, something that only he did, and then he sat down. You and I could never do that, but, but that path that he walked is our path as well. Suffering first, and then glory. Peter says this in, in 1 Peter 2, says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Suffering first, then glory. That's the path of Jesus that we will follow. But, but quickly about that, two important things this text teaches us on that. Uh, we're wrapping up here. Firstly, um, I want you to hear that it's not a lack of faith to be honest and realistic about our current circumstances this text shows us that. So, yes, on one hand, the Bible teaches us to rejoice always. To, to, we actually count it all joy when we meet trials of, of various kinds. But we're also taught that we are to mourn and to grieve. Blessed are those who mourn. There's a whole book in the Bible about lamenting in the proper way. And we have a, a, this, this, we've always had this value uh, in village of a culture of honesty and authenticity that you don't have to leave all your trials at the door come in act like it's all good pick them up on your way out no we're able to say presently we do not see everything in subjection to him we're able to be honest and 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 open about that authentic authenticity and, and honesty we can be honest about pain and disappointment but secondly, the text also shows us that we don't keep our eyes fixed on our current circumstances. We recognize them, we feel them, we, we, we grieve them, we, we lament, sure, but we look to Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. To put it another way, we pay much closer attention to him lest we drift away. Church, remember this in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your disappointment. Remember this 
when you feel like the promises of God and the expectations that that brought up in your heart are in vain. Remember this, when the Christian experience is hard and you're tempted to revert back to your former ways. Remember this when you are weak. Remember this when you don't feel like more than a conqueror. Remember this when your experience is bitter, that Jesus walked that path and he conquered it all. He is better. Things are difficult for us now, church, but we see him. We, we keep our eyes fixed on him, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And I think that means he, he experienced death in a way that, that those of us who have placed our faith in him, those of us who have fixed our eyes on him and pay much closer attention to him, never will. So on the cross, Jesus experienced the, the wrath of God, the separation from God, so that we never will. Suffering will experience. Sorrow will experience. Disappointment will experience. But not the wrath of God. Not the separation from God. It's in Jesus that we can experience one day the world to come that he says, Psalm 8, we will be co-heirs with him. But church, we must pay much closer to Jesus lest we drift away. We must, no matter our circumstances, fix our eyes on him crowned with glory and honor. And just as we close, I want you to notice again just how many times he says we just in this section. I counted like seven times or so how much he says we. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We do not yet see him, but we And one of our, I said one of our goals of the next three years is to, um, for this to be uh, just a knee-jerk reaction for our people, that we figure out what it means to pay closer attention to Jesus. Not just, in, not just a, a head knowledge thing, but deep in our hearts. What does it mean to abide with Jesus daily? What does it mean to fix your eyes on him daily? What does it mean to to practice the presence of him daily, to, to eliminate the sacred and the secular, that, that this is what my time with Jesus and then, this is, then I have kids to take care of and I have work to go to. That's not a biblical idea, that everything is in the presence of God. Everything, you practice his presence always. What does it mean to fix our eyes on him and to pay much closer attention to Jesus? We want this to become an everyday daily discipline uh, part of our lives, but it's also not something that, that is, we go out alone. It's not something that, that I preach, you go out and figure it out. It's we, we do that. There's definitely an individual aspect to abiding with Jesus. There is a, as you wake up in the morning, as you lay your head on your pillow at night, being with him, like, there's, there's that silence, there's that solitude aspect to it. Jesus shows us that. But we figure that out as a family. We encourage one another. We push one another into that. This is an exhortation for that. 
That's his point. We must do this. Church, we must pay closer attention to Jesus, fix our eyes on him, lest we drift away. Let's hear that exhortation and uh, respond. Let's stand and pray. Father, we, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you chose us. We thank you for Jesus, for making it possible for us to draw near to you. Jesus, we thank you that you are our perfect example in life. We thank you that through the cross, through your bloodshed, that we can be sons and daughters of God, that we can have an eternal hope, this world to come that we can lay hold of and, and we, have, we hope for that. We hope confidently in that because we have assurances. Uh, but Jesus, you know, you know better than anyone how hard this life is. And may we, may we feel your heart for us in that, that you're not looking down on us in judgment, saying, why aren't you paying closer attention? He knows what that path of suffering is. Uh, Jesus, we, um, we love you for that. We love you for walking that path perfectly so that we, even though we don't walk it perfectly, we can still have hope. We can still have um, security. Nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, as we worship, may we recognize that. May we fix our eyes on you. Help this message about fixing our eyes on you not be about us in that way, not be about our efforts, what we can do. It's about being with you. It's about trusting you more. It's about having greater affections for you because of you, because of all of chapter one, how glorious you are. Spirit, help us. We need you. Everything is impossible without your help. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.